0: Well, what a week it was, right, for Royals fans. I see some Royals gear out here even today. It's exciting. You you can show a little emotion, be kind of excited about it, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great. It's a great time to be a Kansas Cityan, to be a Royals fan, uh, someone who grew up in Kansas and with a deep love of baseball. It's been a fun week. Um, like, like I'm sure many of you, uh, I tried to make it out on Tuesday to the parade. Uh, operative word: try. Uh, there, at, you know, was, that's another long story. But Beth and I, with our six-month-old Evie, we got, we got out there um, at least deep enough into the belly of the beast to be able to tell you firsthand that it was nuts. It was crazy. Um, the Kansas City, this city, lost its collective mind on Tuesday. Uh, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of sweaty, cranky, you know, tired people out there. But it was really fun, and, and and it lost its mind, but not in the terrible ways that you might think, right? I mean, or in the ways that some cities kind of lose their minds in these parades. I'm sure there are lots of tired people, and it's not all sunshine and rainbows when you get a, a crowd like that together, but. But with only 800,000 people in, I think, what, a two or three mile stretch, I mean, it's not big, Uh, there were only three reported arrests on Tuesday, which is remarkable. I mean, when you really, when you stop and think about that, um, it's a big deal. This city came together to celebrate, and that's just about all it did on Tuesday. And sports have a way of bringing people together, don't they? I mean, bringing people of all shapes and sizes and stripes and colors and background uh, bringing people together. There's not much that can unite a city like a world championship can. And, and the, all those people in the streets together, not as strangers, at least this is what, this is sort of what I witnessed, not as strangers, but as neighbors, as people rallied around a, a common cause with a common joy. And when you think of it that way, it was actually a, a really beautiful thing. Tuesday, I mean, and, and the media has picked up on that, right? We've patted ourselves on the back for being this great city that didn't destroy itself as it celebrates, but it really was a beautiful thing. But of course, uh, it's not going to last forever, right? The parade was going to stop. Uh, the, the players left, went home, right? Alex Gordon became a free agent. That's unfortunate. Um, most, most of us, right, left the parade and went back to our, our suburban neighborhoods, uh, mostly Again, not as neighbors, but in in many ways as strangers. Um, For all the beauty and unity we saw on Tuesday, by Thursday, at least in my experience, by Thursday in some ways it seemed like it never happened. And here's what I mean. I was was looking at the front page of a local news website on Thursday morning, and here's what I found. Here were the sort of the headlines, five headlines on Thursday morning. Shots fired near Overland Park apartment complex. Victim dies from shooting in, in KCK. Two teens charged with murder and slaying of Lee's Summit Woman. Family recovering from devastating fire has home burglarized. That one was particularly terrible to read. And then Lorenzo Cain's steal good for free Taco Bell on Thursday. That was the final headline. (laughs) So in some ways, the celebration continued until Thursday, but not in, in some of the best ways, right? While it was a beautiful picture of unity and oneness, our city isn't without its problems. Our city is not without its problems. It's tempting to believe that narrative, even especially when you look at a celebration like Tuesday, but it just isn't true. And if you need a reminder, flip on the news or go to the website uh, of the news station or check out a history book on Kansas City. Right? Kansas City is known as one of the most divided, city, one of the most segregated cities in the United States. It's a city with incredible disparities. It's a city with many, many people who are one, bad breakaway from real desperation, and many who are already there. Our city is filled with people in extremely vulnerable situations. And the Bible talks a lot about those kinds of people, those who are vulnerable. And Andy Crouch, one of my, uh, an author that I really enjoy, he has this definition for the vulnerable. According to the Bible, it says, Those who, because of the distorted reality of human societies, are most at risk of not flourishing of not becoming what they are meant to be. What we've been covering in the the last several weeks in this series, what we know we are meant to be from Genesis and from other texts from Luke 10. In biblical terms, the health of a society, of a country, of a city, of a community, of a neighborhood, it can't be measured by, uh, by a parade after a world championship, right? Or a jobs report or the strength of a housing market it's measured primarily by this, are the vulnerable flourishing in the community? Are those at greatest risk being cared for? It's the greatest measure of whether or not, right, whether or not a, uh, a society is healthy, a country is healthy, a city is healthy. And this is what the book of Amos is about. Amos was an unusual prophet, but he, he ministered at a time of great economic prosperity in in Israel, among God's people. Great flourishing was happening in Israel, except the most vulnerable, except among those who are most at risk of not flourishing. They were not flourishing. Justice was not being done. And God's judgment on his people uh, for this gross failure is the main point of this book. So we're in Amos this morning. And we've been in a series uh, on neighborly love, right? Asking, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Whether as a student or an employee or a boss or a CEO or a retiree, how can we begin to see and use our contribution, the work that God has called us to, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek the common good? That's where we've been, right? We've seen that. We've seen that in Genesis, God's design for our work, and contribution, that we were created to collaborate together, that we were created for economic life, to work uh, with each other and to steward our economics wisely. But we can't have a series on neighborly love. We can't have a Christian conversation about what it means to love our communities, our neighborhoods, our neighbors without talking about justice and injustice. The misuse of power and privilege and resources by those in privileged positions and justice. We have to talk about how we are and aren't loving those who are most vulnerable among us in our city. And that's the big idea this morning, that loving your neighbor means loving the vulnerable. Loving your neighbor and even loving your neighborhoods means loving the vulnerable. So the the guiding question for this morning, what, what does it look like to love our neighbors that are most at risk of not flourishing? So turn, turn to the book of Amos. If you've got a Bible this morning, we'll also have um, the verses on the screens. You may have to use your table of contents to find it. I had to use my table of contents because it's a small book. Uh, but flip there um, and turn to chapter 5. There are four things. We're going to be kind of all over Amos, but chapter 5 is, is the anchoring point this morning. There are four things that I want to I think through this morning around this question of what does it look like to love those who are most at risk of not flourishing? The first thing we need to do is truly see the, vul- the vulnerable, really see and understand what it means to be vulnerable. We often think we know what that means, right, but we need to really consider it this morning. We need to see what it's like to have our flourishing at risk, see what it's like that the, uh, the flourishing of others around us is at risk. So Amos gives us two important glimpses into the economic and political realities, legal realities of the vulnerable. And these are just as true today as they were then. First Amos shows us that the vulnerable are, for the most part, victims of legal corruption and indifference. Legal corruption and indifference. Look at verse, look at verse 10 with me in chapter 5. It says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now, I wanna I wanna key in on that gate language there. When when Amos talks about the gate, in the ancient society, that's where. That's where the judges would hang out to mete out justice. Uh, they, they, they spent their time there um, to hear cases and give, give verdicts. I mean, that's, so when you hear gate in this language, think, think about sort of like a courthouse. It's the heart of the legal system. And, and Amos is saying, even in the, in the legal heart of the city, the place designed to defend, defend the poor, to serve the powerless, to make sure that justice was being meted out to all people there was corruption. Where the judges judges were taking bribes from the rich to disenfranchise the poor, to dismiss their cases, especially against those who had means, especially against the rich. And they did everything they could to side with those who were powerful, those who had resources. And the health of a legal system, both then and today, is not measured by how well it serves the the well-to-do but how well it actually helps the down and out. If the poor and powerless do not have the resources to, to ensure justice, the system is broken, it's unjust. And if those in positions of privilege and power with resources, with means, do not work to empower the vulnerable, to work on their behalf, like we talked about last week, disadvantaging themselves for the advantage of others, then that's, the injustice will prevail in that system. And to be vulnerable is to have no advocates, it's to have no one speaking on your behalf, and in many ways to have no one even actually thinking about you. And because of this, the vulnerable are often, they're often victims of legal and political corruption. Being vulnerable often, more often than not, leads to systemic economic oppression. So economic injustice at the highest level, embedded in systems, Here's what it looked like in Amos in Amos's day. In chapter two, verse six, uh, which again will be up on the screen, Amos says this. He says, "They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals." And this is a highly debated verse, but here's here is what Amos is alluding to, as best as we can tell. He says, "Silver is a synonym here for large for a large debt." In the ancient world, if you uh, if you defaulted on a loan, so if you couldn't make a payment, uh, it didn't just hurt your credit score. It didn't just make it harder next time to get a loan. In many cases, you were put into slavery and had to work that off uh, for, in, in some cases, for the rest of your life. And that's what it means to sell the righteous, right? People are being sold into slavery in droves. And the wealthy had such enormous buying power and so much resource that they were driving up prices for the, the most basic of necessities. So sandals, in this verse, or food, or whatever it is that you need to survive, And the poor were going into tremendous debt for those things just to survive. And in some cases, I mean, we talked a little bit last week about payday lending. It's a good example now of of how this happens. You have to put yourself and your family into an enormous amount of debt while the interest on that debt keeps rising and rising and rising. And you can't climb out. It's systemic economic enslavement and injustice. And so Amos here is screaming at God's people, as a prophet can do, he's screaming at God's people saying, look at this, don't look away. Look at what's happening among my people in your midst. Don't look away, don't get distracted, look at what's happening. See the vulnerable and how they're being oppressed. And we need to do the same thing this morning. What does this look like today in Kansas City And as someone who just bought a home in Johnson County, uh, let me give one example around home ownership. So after World War II, um, at the end of World War II, many returned home, both here in Kansas City and around the country, uh, to buy homes and live the American dream. And the Federal Housing Authority was right there, ready to hand them loans and help them make that possible. And the suburbs became a thing, right? It became a thing after World War II, all across the country, not just here. But unfortunately, the, the FHA had bought into this sort of new, uh, new idea from a very influential city planner, uh, and this is it. This is straight out of the FHA's underwriting manual. This is the idea that um, was bought into. It says, "If a neighborhood is to re- retain stability, it is necessary that properties shall continue to be occupied by the same racial and social classes. A change in social or racial occupancy generally." leads to instability and a reduction in values. In other words, your race and social status determined your ability to get a home loan uh, during that time. You could only buy in an appropriately zoned neighborhood. And this idea shaped the entire country. The developer who perfected it, JC Nichols. And where did he perfect it before consulting With FDR on the formation of the FHA, Kansas City. This is why you can draw a line down Truce Avenue, and where one race lives on one side, for the most part, and one race lives on the other, where whites live on one side and blacks on the other. And if you're unfamiliar with the Truce Line, as it's called, here's a map that illustrates the point. It may be hard to see. But what I really want you to see is the red dots and the blue dots. There are also yellow and and orange dots that that illustrate where Asian and Hispanic households are. But the red dots are white households and the blue dots are black households. This is five years ago based on a census uh, depicting the segregation that was built upon these racially restrictive covenants in Kansas City. This kind of racial segregation didn't just happen. It's the result of systemic economic injustice that shaped in many ways the home ownership in our city for decades. And access, I mean we know this, access to private property, to owning private property is crucial for economic flourishing, for thriving, for building wealth. We, most of us know that even if we take it for granted. I know I take it for granted, right? Most of us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, they owned homes and built their wealth based on that ownership. And this question has plagued me a little bit this week. Where would I be, where would you be if they were systemically denied access to loans to buy a home in a good neighborhood with good schools based on their race or ethnicity? What would, your look, what would your life look like now, today? Pretty vulnerable. And this isn't about people not working hard enough to better their lives, to make it, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's not even about the breakdown of the family. Though those things, are, those things happen, those are true. This is about a system that is oppressing a certain type of people economically that was set up to intentionally deny a group of folks access to opportunities that most of us in this room take for granted, myself included. So what would Amos say to the the kind of economic oppression that not just happened then in Kansas City, but continues to be perpetuated now? I can't imagine him saying anything but woe to you. Woe to you. And I know this is heavy stuff, I've been thinking about it this week, and even in light of the beautiful harmony that we saw on Tuesday, maybe especially in light of that, it's been tough to chew on. But we have to see it. We have to see the injustice that is happening to those who are most at risk of not flourishing, who are vulnerable. We have to see what it's like to be vulnerable in Kansas City. God's word is is forcing us through Amos to that point. So can you look at it? Can you look at what's at that, that map or, or, or payday lending or wh- whatever it is? Uh, education system in Kansas City, Missouri is, well, we don't, we don't need to get into that here. Can we look at that and say, that's injustice, it's oppression, it's systemic? Because if we can look at injustice, then we can do what Amos calls us to next. We have to see the vulnerable, understand the injustice that's happening. And, then, and when we do, we can grieve with the vulnerable. And this next text hit me really hard uh, this week, harder than the first. And it's in chapter six, starting in verse four, sort of the summary indictment on God's people of Israel. It says this, it'll be up on the screen. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, and lounge on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of harp, and like David, improvise on instruments of music, who drink wine from bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils. Sounds like a good life. But are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph, but are not grieved over the ruin of those who are most vulnerable in the city. So here, Amos shifts his attention from those who are directly oppressing the poor and the powerless, and he moves it to anyone who has benefited from that type of injustice. So basically, most of us in this room. And he doesn't say, woe to you for having an easier life. He doesn't say, woe to you for having nice things. That's not, that is not the point. He says, woe to you if you claim to be God's people. And you are not broken in grief over the injustice that is happening among you. Woe to you if you do not grieve over what grieves God. See, most of us are doing fairly well. I'm not saying life is easy, but most, most of us here in this room are not the most are not the most vulnerable among us. And that's fine. Having a nice job. Having a nice home and a stable job and a 401k and a retirement fund, these are good things. But Amos is asking, are you grieved over injustice? While you enjoy those nice things, do you also see that others are suffering and do you grieve because of it? Or are you, are we so insulated that we don't see it or have the the capacity to grieve over it? And I'm not asking us to fix this right now. That's my—that's the knee-jerk reaction for me. Is so, what do we do? What? Do, how do we fix it? I'm asking us to open our minds to the possibility of and the reality of true injustice in our city among those who are at the at most at risk of not thriving, and to acknowledge it to the point of grief. I think that means two things. First, it means repentance. Repentance is part of that grieving process. I mean, if there are areas of our lives where we have benefited from an uneven playing field, which is absolutely true for me, we need to ask for forgiveness, even if, that's un- even if unwittingly you have benefited. And I need, I mean, this is a point where I need to admit my own blind spots. I mean, as a young, as a young white male with access to good education and good employment at every turn in my life, I have I have privilege that I, I have to realize, I have to under I have to under, acknowledge that privilege, that I haven't I haven't experienced inequities that applying for work or negotiating wages that many that many women or racial minorities experience. I never I never thought twice about the fact that I may not be able to get a home loan. I took that for granted. But as a Johnson County resident, as someone who lives in Johnson County, Kansas, I have benefited from an uneven playing field. That is, that's the reality. I have to come face to face with that truth and acknowledge it and come to a point of grief over the fact that someone else suffered injustice so that I could benefit in where I live. I have to start by acknowledging my privilege and where I am misusing it, where I'm misusing the privilege that I have, the power, honestly. I need to repent. We all need to repent. Instead of using privilege and power for myself, I have an opportunity to use it for the common good, for those who are most at risk of not flourishing. So take a good, long look inside. Join me in doing that and ask do I really care about this stuff, or do, I, or do I typically just avoid it at all costs, walk away, distract myself with something less convicting or more comfortable? Do I only care when injustice happens to me? Does this hit my heart the way Amos is asking it to? And if, like me, the answer is no, I don't, then repent, ask for forgiveness. And second, so first we repent, second we lament. Lament, And we talked about lament in the Psalms series. This is acknowledging out loud to God, not complaining, but addressing God, that there is brokenness and evil that will not be dealt with until Jesus comes back. That doesn't mean we don't strive for justice. It doesn't mean we give up hope. Actually, true lament leads to hope. But lament knows that our ultimate hope is not possible. The side of Christ's return. It's not. True Lament knows that my ingenuity, my good ideas, my resources, my hard work, my networks, none of those, none of those things are ultimately what the world needs. They're they're ultimately not what the, the vulnerable need. We all together need the redemption of a Messiah and we need his kingdom to come. We just aren't going to get those things right now. We pray to that end, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we lament in the meantime. And while we do these two things, repent and lament, we also listen. We need to listen. Grieving involves listening. And I remember, I remember trying to process what was happening in Ferguson at the time. Um, I, I called a friend, or I a Facebook messaged a friend uh, from Chicago, a black man that I served with in a ministry um, in in the city, and I was acutely aware at the time of my own ignorance. (laughs) I I, I didn't know, I I knew that I felt sorrow and lament, but I didn't know, I didn't really know what to think. I didn't know how to listen well, and I asked him to help me understand. And after some really painful but good insight, um, he had this, he kind of ended with this, and I want to share it with you. He says, Andrew, thank you for taking the time to reach out and read me. It's probably the best thing that you or anyone who doesn't have to experience this could do. Just be compassionate, listen, and understand. Love you so much, man. In Christ, Manny. And I don't share that uh, as a model example, but I share that so that you can hear what's most important. I mean, that was shocking to me at the very end for him to say, What's most important? The best thing you can do is listen. Hear my pain. Sit with me in my grief. Share my sorrow. Do you have anyone in your life right now that you know is vulnerable, that you know is at risk, at great risk, of not thriving, of not flourishing? Do you listen to them? Do they feel safe to be honest with you? And speaking of listening, I want to take just a few seconds. Hopefully this isn't weird for you, but as I'm talking at you about not talking, about listening. I want to take a few moments just to be silent and quiet and actually spend 15 seconds of silence to repent, to lament, and to listen. And so if you would, just bow your heads and be quiet before God for a moment. God, we don't care enough or don't know how to care. Many of us don't understand. And forgive us, help us to listen to those whom you have put around us to remind us that we, to remind us what it is to be vulnerable. To remind us that we live in a terribly broken and unjust world and that it ought not be this way. And we pray, Jesus, that you would come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. it's only after repenting and lamenting and listening that we can even begin to think about helping. Uh, And if we can, if we can be those people that, that lament, that grieve with, with the vulnerable, we'll be able to stand with them, stand with the vulnerable. That's the next point. And I've just got three thoughts on this coming out of the text. Um, Three practical ways, semi-practical ways that we can stand with the vulnerable. And first comes out of verse 15. It says, hate evil and love good and then establish justice at the gate. So first, we need to grow in character, grow in our hatred of evil and our love of the good. See, Amos knows and God teaches that only people who hate evil and love good will be able to establish justice in the gate, in, in this case, in the legal heart of the city. But even, even those economic realities that we talked about before, Character comes first. And this is why God is so hard on his own people in the book of Amos. See, Amos starts with an indictment against all the other nations. They're also doing some really bad stuff. uh, Worse than the Hebrews. but, But God expects more from his people. They're supposed to know his character and reflect it. To love good and to hate evil. There's no system, economic, political, social There's no system that can fight injustice without people of character, people who hate evil and love good. People who are willing to, like we talked about last week, disadvantage themselves for the advantage of others. Disenfranchise themselves for the common good. So grow in character. Second, grow in wisdom. Grow in wisdom. Study these, be familiar with these topics, with the issues that face the most vulnerable in our city. And our, we had a recent conference uh, that, that we were a part of, Common, the Common Good Conference, CG 2015. And this, this is a big part of what we talked about. Um, and, and there's a video that hopefully most of you got an email uh, yesterday from Tom Nelson. He said, if you didn't get it, email me. I'll forward it on to you. But it has links to portions of that conference, uh, lectures during that time that were probably some of the best that I've ever heard on poverty. Um, and so and injustice, especially from Stan Archie at our sister church, CFBC. And so I encourage you to find that in your email, seek it out for me and watch it. Grow in wisdom around these things. Finally, use your power to help the vulnerable flourish. Here's the thing. We all have power. It may not feel that way, but we all have influence uh, as image bearers of God. It's part of, part of the way God has made us. It doesn't matter how old you are, how much you make whether you're a retired, part-time, full-time student, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, it doesn't matter. You have power, and your power can either help or hurt the vulnerable. So here's, if you don't hear any other question from this morning, I hope this question resonates as you walk out the door. It says, who is flourishing in your life because of your power? Because of the ways that God has gifted to you to contribute, to bear fruit, For others, who is flourishing in your life because of the things that God has entrusted to you? Is anyone besides you or your family flourishing because of your influence? And for some of you kids, especially for some of you, this is as simple as loving a friend who has no friends. Loving somebody who, it's pretty clear, there aren't many people in their life who love them. So kids, seek out other other, friend, other people to make friends with, those who are not loved. For some of you, it's joining a neighborhood association or, um, or the like, advocating for those who have no voice, because we do, all of us have those people in our neighborhood, those who have no voice, who are overlooked. For some, that means running your business with an eye toward the vulnerable, whether it's job training or who you hire if you're retired this morning, where is God calling you to invest now? Your, your skills, your expertise, how can you share those wisely? Who is flourishing because you are retired? No one can tell you what this looks like in your life. This, is, this needs to be a, a time of self-assessment. You have to do that work here, but where is God asking you to step in and use your power to help the, the vulnerable flourish? See, we cannot say we are a church of neighborly love uh, if we are not actively involved in the flourishing of the vulnerable. Now, you can tell we're almost done because we feel pretty guilty and overwhelmed. That's when a sermon is almost over, right? You feel that guilt. I hope that's not always true. But here's the thing. Guilt doesn't work. In this, in this, uh, in this area, it doesn't work, right? We can all leave here. We can feel bad. Uh, but after a day or a week or a month, it just that feeling goes away because we're fine. Guilt doesn't work. And that's why God deals in grace. He doesn't deal in guilt. He deals in grace. Only grace can motivate us to be people of justice. So here's our final point. We must see the vulnerable. We must grieve with them. We must stand with them. We also must remember our own vulnerability. Remember your vulnerability. This is implied throughout Amos. He's saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember when you were... When you were enslaved in Egypt, I came in and rescued you. It's pure grace. He, he owed them nothing, and yet he stepped in and rescued them out of injustice and slavery. And he says to, to turn around and your, oppress your neighbor, you're trampling over that grace. It's a rejection of God Himself. And almost every metaphor in the Bible for God's people is built around. Uh, being socially or economically vulnerable. Here are some examples. You were an orphan until God adopted you. That's clear in the New Testament. Adoption is this beautiful truth in the New Testament. You were a widow until God married you. We were the bride of Christ. You were an immigrant until God welcomed you. You were spiritually poor until God redeemed you. You were in a broken spiritual neighbor, neighborhood and world until Christ entered in and suffered with you. And there's a reason the Bible is full of these metaphors for the vulnerable, right? There's no one more vulnerable than you and I. Christians, of all people, should know that to be true. We're going to come up here in a few moments and celebrate. We're going to celebrate. We're going to remember Christ's body broken and blood shed for us because we needed somebody to die for us. It's about the most vulnerable position you can be in. So why do we do this? Why do we care about the vulnerable. It cannot be because of guilt. It must be out of grace. The world doesn't need more guilty people. It's got plenty. It needs more loving people, more people who know how loved they are. This is what the church can be. This is what we are supposed to be. We are called to be a church of neighborly love. And Nothing unites us like victory, Right, going back, I mean, going back to Tuesday, I mean, think we're almost a million people strong to celebrate a victory, a victory on our behalf as Kansas Cityans. As you replay that in your mind, uh, depending on how big a Royal fan you are, how often you replay that in your mind, think about this, that a day is coming when our city will rejoice again and the vulnerable will do so with the powerful, the rich will do so with the poor. Every tribe, tongue, nation and people will bow, together before a king who is victorious on our behalf our city will not be divided any longer so can we live friends as God's people like that day is coming I pray that we can and Jesus Jesus taught us how to pray toward that end with the Lord's prayer and so I want to pray that over us uh, as we close so bow your heads with me let's pray Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come soon, Jesus. Your kingdom come, your will be done as, as earth, on earth as it is in heaven now. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into evil. Deliver us from evil.